Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week in which domestic politics, law, and world diplomacy braided together in portentous and disquieting ways. By the time you hear this, or shortly thereafter, Donald Trump will be the first former U.S. president to face criminal charges in the form of an indictment from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. That itself is seismic to be sure, though the particular case might not be the one that Trump antagonists would have chosen first. And the former president is likely to respond to the charges with a chest-beating swagger and a call to arms to his faithful who figure to dismiss the indictment as political sabotage from the deep state. The political squabbles within the Republican Party, which frequently seem trivial and even comic, crossed over this week to ominous geopolitical significance. In his pre-announcement national tour, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took a question from Fox broadcaster Tucker Carlson as an opportunity to characterize the war in Ukraine as a, quote, territorial dispute, close quote, and to announce his view that protecting Ukraine's borders is not a vital United States interest. Since Trump, too, is hostile to U.S. efforts in Ukraine, and since the two leading candidates together have the current support of about 80% of the party, it means that a possible radical revision to the United States' role in the world will be on the ballot in 2024. The limitations of that global role were on vivid display early in the week when, improbably, China announced it had brokered a breakthrough agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It was immediately apparent that the achievement would have been outside the ken of the United States given its wretched relations with Iran, and that it had elevated China to a role of greatly increased influence in the Middle East, with broad implications for many countries and regions, beginning perhaps with Israel. To probe events that look to have the potential to upend and remake not just the domestic political scene, but the global world order and the United States' place in it, we welcome three of the country's most respected political analysts. And they are Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times, where he is covering his fifth presidential administration. Before joining the Times in 2008, he reported for the Washington Post for 20 years. He's also an MSNBC political analyst and the author of seven books, most recently The Divider, Trump in the White House. 2017 to 2021, which he co-wrote with his wife, Susan Glasser, and we covered in a Talking Books interview last time we saw him, I think. Good to see you again. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks for having me. Last time we did it live in California. Exactly. I wanted, That was my first live Talking Books. We have big plans for that, but not to be revealed today. <laughs> Bill Crystal, the editor at large at The Bulwark and the founder and director of Defending Democracy Together. Bill founded the Weekly Standard in 1995 and edited that influential magazine for over two decades. He served in senior positions in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, two figures who I guess Trump has declared shall never be 
politely talked of in Republican circles henceforth, and is the host of the excellent video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. Welcome back, Bill. Thanks, Harry. Good to be back. And Tara Setmeyer, a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. She co-hosts their Tour de Force show, The Breakdown, with Rick Wilson, where I've been lucky enough to be a guest several times. Before joining the Lincoln Project, Tara was a CNN political commentator and Republican communications director on Capitol Hill. She is a resident scholar at the UVA Center for Politics for the 2022-2023 academic year. Welcome back to everyone on a gala day of returning guests all. Thanks again for rejoining Tara Setmeyer. Thank you for having me. It's always a fun time with you, Harry. Maybe a little less today than others, I must say. All right, let's start with the very long-awaited first criminal charge against the former president of the United States. So Michael Cohen spent the better part of two afternoons with a special grand jury in Manhattan. And all that remains, in the view of most legal commentators, including me, is for the grand jury to return an indictment probably the day we publish this podcast. So let's take that as a given. If Trump puts together some deus ex machina escape, I'll take the heat. But for now, I just want to get your thoughts on a couple questions and the implications of the pending charges. So first, Trump and his at least TV spokesperson are adopting this chest-thumping, bring-it-on attitude. Very unusual, kind of the exact opposite of what defendants normally do. What's your sense? Do you see this as false bravado or might it be what he's suggesting it is, a political boon on balance for the once and future presidential candidate to be indicted uh, in a courtroom in New York? I mean, I suppose it's a legal and political strategy. It's not always the case. Is it, Harry, that that's not an unusual thing in criminal trials in local and state courts? This is a well-established defense tactic. I believe O.J. Simpson was acquitted with this kind of defense. I'm serious. With this kind of defense, but not these kind of public chest-thumping, bring it on, I am your warrior kind of stuff. For New York City, I don't know. Maybe I grew up in New York, you know, so I'm thinking of like various (laughs) trials there and stuff, and especially politicians. You want to influence the jury pool. You want to maybe deter the DA. You want to cheer up your supporters and sort of pre-inoculate them against any damage that might be done by a mere indictment. It's a political indictment by an elected Democratic DA. Ludicrous. So, okay, so hopefully from Trump's point of view, for Republican primary voters, which is his primary concern right now, he's at least removed any... any damage that could be done and maybe even turn it into a plus. And I don't think he's hurt. His legal case will be the legal case. And I'm no expert on that. And it feels to me like it's a little, it's a complicated legal theory. And I'd say lawyers I know are not 100% confident about conviction. And I'm a little dubious about, I just, if it's against the law, if they have a good legal case, they should bring it. Trump should not be in any way treated differently from any other person. If he's broken the law, I think it's very important to reestablish that principle of the rule of law. Having said that, with my sort of political hat on, of all the things Trump has done, like try to overturn an election and just flout it in the most brazen way, all the rules about dealing with classified documents, and try to call Raffensperger in Georgia and overturn that, the idea that the Stormy Daniels hush money payment is going to be the thing that trips him up, I'm a little dubious about that. And I'm also, he can delay the trial a fair amount, so I don't know that it really hurts him much in 2023 or 24. And I don't know. I ask you, Harry, you're, I mean, what are the odds that ultimately, 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 Donald J. Trump is convicted of a felony in this case? 
It's not 90%. Is it 50% even? I'm kind of thinking it's 25% or something when you add everything in, which makes me a little unhappy that this is the first one out of the chute. But look, if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do, and you can't overthink it. It doesn't stop other things from coming down the chute in two or four or six months. But it's a little unfortunate, yeah. I think. I don't think he's stupid to think, you know what? It's not the worst thing for me in the world. Yeah. If this is the first indictment I face, a Manhattan liberal DA, and I'm going to put my guys on TV and let them scream and yell about it, and I'm not so sure that hurts him in at least the short, medium term. All right, let me make a couple legal points, but then serve up this very question. You know, it's pre-presidential conduct. It doesn't really go to the heartland of his wickedness as a president. I wonder what Peter and Tara think about that. But so quickly, Bill, first, I wanted to say that in terms of departure from the normal playbook, it's because even in New York, everything that Trump says, not his lawyer, but everything Trump says is fodder for cross-examination. So as he doubles down, their cross-examination file gets thicker. On the prospects of the case, I want to see the indictment. As you've mentioned, and we don't want to get too legal on this one, but Bragg is needing to make a charge that seems very straightforward of misidentification of a business record, but then needs to enhance it with another crime. And the leading candidate seems to be a campaign contribution violation on the theory that the 130000 was to buoy his political prospects as you're nearing the election. He says it was just, you know, out of concern for Melania. But just in general, that theory is on soft and even untrod ground. But right now, to everything we know, seems very similar to what it was a year ago. So I'm loath to pull the trigger on 25, 50, 75 without seeing two things from the indictment. Has he actually tumbled to a different and cleaner other crime to couple this with. And how strong is the corroborating information? David Pecker is one of the witnesses there. So the whole National Enquirer part, Hope Hicks, participates in two big phone calls, the paper record itself. And then my final point is, you make an excellent point that go to all of these, which is there's the starting line and the finish line. And some of them, Georgia is definitely the case as well, are going to be immediately bogged down in all kinds of pretrial litigation. And several months from now, the happenstance that this was first out of the gate, even though it's surprising us now and stealing Fonnie Willis's thunder, I think will recede very much in importance. Having said all that, we don't tell DAs what order to bring something in, but is it a little unfortunate, I think was Bill's word, that this is where for the first time a former president is facing a criminal charge? I happen to agree with Bill on this, that of all the cases, is it this one that's going to be the first history-making case? I think the American people are a bit over the Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen saga with Trump. As much as Michael Cohen has reformed his ways and tried to speak out and illuminate what's been going on, and this has been a saga for him for several years, he went to prison and over it and all of it, it's just been crazy. But... I think the average American is looking at this and going, okay, this is par for the course for Trump. This is this tabloid fodder kind of nonsense that is part of the Trump clown show that we're used to. How does this really impact our lives? Is this what it's going to be? No. I would like to see the the Fannie Willis, the fake elector scheme, I mean, trying to overturn our free and fair elections and basically instigating a coup attempt in plain sight is way more impactful and something even for the history books to reflect 
that a president of the United States was engaged in and should be held accountable for. That's what I would like to see. It may not be as sexy and tabloid front page as the Stormy Daniels nonsense with Trump and all of that. I mean, if it's illegal, great. But I would hope that the satisfaction for not only the American people, but just for the our democracy would be that a former president who engaged in a violent insurrection against our capital, anything that is a byproduct of that should be where he's held accountable. If this is going to be the history-making first indictment of a United States president, I would hope it was there. So I, I think that that is an incredibly important point in terms of both history and in terms of the voting public and how they look at this, how seriously do they view this. They might have seen it a lot more seriously four years ago than they do today because of everything that's happened since then, as Tara and Bill just said. And Harry, to your point on the prosecution, what I'm struck by is it feels like, according to lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, according to lawyers, it's a bit of an interpretational stretch. To Everybody who's not a lawyer makes always makes sure to say that yeah. every time. On that. Well, we don't want to be blamed, you know? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. right. Yeah. We have some self-respect, right. Harry. I mean, come on. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're walking into the mob. Not a lawyer. <laughs> not a lawyer. Exactly. But uh, to the point that Alvin Bragg, who took over just you know about a year or so ago as the DA in Manhattan, and the first thing he does is decide not to pursue what seemed like to at least some of his aides, a stronger case on financial misconduct by President Trump, former President Trump, and then turns around and takes this case, which was done, moribund, dead, and decide to revive it. That's really interesting. Now, so what does that tell us? I'm not sure. I don't know Alvin Bragg, so we're left to speculate. Does it mean that he feels in some way regretful that he didn't take on the earlier case and wants to prove his bona fides as a Democrat in a Democratic city? Or does it mean that he now feels like this other case is really so strong that it is worth pulling from the dead pile and going back to a grand jury and getting him to indict. And I don't know the answer to the question, but I, it's an interesting one. On the history part of it, I do think that we, in some ways, have so normalized Trump that we have lost the sense of, holy moly, what we're about to do here is huge. And if it's not for the crime that people want him to be charged with, it is still a first in history in which a former president of the United States is brought to the dock for a allegedly criminal offense. And we ought not lose the sense that that is a big, big deal. Now, you could look at a couple of ways. One, does it make us look more like a banana republic where a prosecutor from the other party in any of the 50 states can come along and say, hey, we're going to take this guy down? Or on the flip side, as Bill said, you know, isn't there something to be said for no person is above the law and we believe in accountability in our system, even for somebody who is powerful and popular? And that's the real interesting question to me. That's the tension, the essential tension of any of these prosecutions is stepping into this uncharted territory about the limits and extent of power and accountability in a democracy. And just one footnote, if I could, on just the politics of it, because I think I had sort of suggested, well, Trump might relish this, or at least, certainly whether he likes it or not, he'll try to take advantage of it in the, let's just say the Republican primaries for now, since that's the next year until we get to the general election. And so I was thinking, well, what if you're Ron DeSantis, if you're Ron DeSantis's top political strategist, what do you think about this? On the one hand, I think you do think, you know what, an indictment, maybe a lot of people don't like the Manhattan DA and he can say it's political, but still it adds to the sense of, oof, can't we get beyond this? Maybe there's just too much baggage. And that is DeSantis' main argument after all, ultimately. And maybe some of those 20, 30, 40% of the Republican electorate who like Trump and, more than that, even 50, who like Trump and DeSantis and are sort of wavering between the two of them, they're roughly even right now, presumably, you know, they go to DeSantis on the grounds of, look, I like Trump, it's unfair, but you know what? We got to win in 2024, so let's go to DeSantis. You can make that case if you're DeSantis' top strategist. Or you think, geez, I mean, 
Ron's going to have to say this is unjust to Trump, right? I think DeSantis is going to have to sort of come to Trump's sort of defense on this, and it makes Trump the center of the action, and Trump's the one being persecuted by a liberal DA in Manhattan, and I don't know, maybe this makes it easier for Trump. So it's, I think it's a very tough call about, I mean, just in the sort of detailed kind of Republican primary dynamics, which one it helps, I'm just not sure. Does it help Trump or hurt Trump? And we'll move to the politics shortly, but it strikes me as having the perfect bipolar aspect that the Republicans face now, which is the argument you're saying is an excellent argument for the party elite, the fundraisers, and the like, one more piece of baggage. But the other point you're making to rev them up is total red meat for that 30% Trump crowd. And until those two forces sort of marry up or, you know, one makes the other recede, it seems like a stalemate right now in the Republican Party. The point I was going to add to Bill's point and your point is that it depends on whether this is the first or the last, right? If this is just the first of what ends up being two, three, or maybe even four indictments, remember there there's four different potential criminal cases here that we know of, right? Georgia and the two different federal ones. Then that's a whole different thing. If it's just like a stack of indictments there, I think it adds to what Bill is saying is the risk for Trump is just the baggage. Like if you're DeSantis, I'm Trump without the baggage. DeSantis can probably get away with saying, hey, this is unfair. But even if it's unfair, wouldn't you rather have a 44-year-old guy who doesn't have to be worrying about fighting off everything in court, who can do all the same things that Trump did without the lawyers? That's not a bad argument for him. It's probably a, a pretty strong one, I think. Well, he can make that argument all he wants, but if there's more than one or two candidates in the primary, the Republican base will stay with Donald Trump no matter what, and they're not going to like Ron DeSantis. And we're starting to see the cracks with some of his comments recently. And I know as much as the establishment and the gentry Republicans would love Ron DeSantis to swing in and be the savior from an embattled Trump, they have to get past a primary. And the primary is something that as long as Trump is in there, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and whoever else decides they want to have a vanity candidacy, the plurality will benefit Donald Trump. That 30, 35% will not budge. It doesn't matter. He could have 10 indictments. Trump has been laying the predicate for this victimization by the elites, by the Justice Department. It's all a witch hunt. It's a political hoax. All of those things for years and years and years. And how many times has he made it personal? When they come for me, they're coming for you. And we may see that, but the Republican base voters, the MAGA voters who dominate the primary, and people have to remember that the Republican primary is winner take all. It's not like Democrats where it's proportional. They are firmly behind Trump still. So we're not convinced that DeSantis is going to be able to handle that because it's clear that Trump is already starting to lay some hands on him. The Trump campaign has former DeSantis disgruntled DeSantis staffers that work for him now. So they know the vulnerabilities and they're already starting to land some punches on him on that. I just want to emphasize that it's really important in this to think about the vantage point from two, three, four, maybe even 12 months down the line. And two things are going to be very important to note then. First, Tara's going to get her wish. There's going to be charges and big charges coming out of Georgia. I don't know if you saw a very interesting article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution 
where they got five more members of the special grand jury who were anonymous and obviously were reacting to the kind of strange PR tour that the foreperson had taken. But there's all kinds of details in there that if you're Trump's defense lawyer, you're planning for indictment and soon. But then second, on the whole other side of things, and Peter's justifiably noting this as a tectonic moment, it will be that way in some sense. The cork will pop, but the champagne will not pour. There's going to be, at that point, people hugely disgruntled. Because, Wait a second, I thought we were having a trial here. They're going to be reacquainted bitterly with the slow pace of the justice system. <laughs> He's going to be able to squeeze this for a year or more, and it's just going to be dragging on and feel this event, huge as it is, is going to feel like almost another kind of phantom punch that he eluded. Let me ask one final question. You brought this up, Peter. You know, yes, I take Bill's point that, you know, everyone should be treated the same, but there's a funkiness, I think, in the law that's going to play out in extended legal argument. I wonder if you have any kind of pause on a policy basis. A single elected DA going after a former president. Do we think that there's some way in which this very feature that you noted, a local elected DA being able to charge a former president. Does anybody have any kind of, uh, you know, stomach pain based on the prospect? I think it raises that question because, I mean, a lot of people don't want to confront it because they're so eager to get Trump and, and exactly. in the ends justify the means. And, and he's so guilty of so many things. We think he ought to be charged by everybody everywhere all the time, right, to quote a certain movie. And I think that that obscures the larger point you're, you're raising there, which is, yeah, what do we want the system to be like? I seem to remember at one point that the state of Vermont or a township in Vermont wanted to charge George W. Bush and Dick Cheney with war crimes, for instance. And, <laughs> and if I remember correctly, Bill may remember this better than I do. The only state that Bush never went to as president, I think, was Vermont, if I'm not wrong about that. Now, you know, okay, that's sort of fanciful. They're not going to actually probably do that. And the difference is this is not about his actions as president. It's not while he is president. It's about things he did prior to being president that are certainly under the jurisdiction of New York legal system. So, you know, it's not exactly the scenario that might be most troublesome, I think, as a policy matter. But it does raise questions that we haven't confronted before. We just haven't confronted it. It's not something he did as president, but to make the charge a felony, as I understand it, it has to be that he did it in order to influence the presidential to campaign. Himself. Right. In a way, the yeah. pure Trump organization, fraud, whatever stuff was just a New York criminal case, right? And you could say, well, it's a little late bringing it because they couldn't do it for the four years he was president, so they're bringing it now, so fine. This does implicate the presidential stuff a little more. And I do think from just a political point of view, of course, Trump will say it's the Biden DOJ if it's a when, if and when justice indicts. So it's not political either way. But there is something about the Federal Department of Justice, I think, with a massive indictment on a fundamental thing that we've seen hearings about to overturn the election, or even the classified docs, which a lot of other people have been indicted yeah. for and pled guilty to, and famous people, David Petraeus and others have paid a price for it. I feel like in those cases with DOJ indicting, you could at least beat back the political charge more easily than you can with an individual local elected DA. I'll just say I agree, but more of that to come. It does strike me that people aren't thinking about it for the reasons Peter said. It's just any way to, to you know get him in an orange jumpsuit. All right, let's look more broadly at this, more political stuff. And I guess starting with DeSantis. So he's all but declared, and he's had his kind of introductory tour on the national stage. He's starting to draw incoming from Trump. 
how's his debut going? You know, he wants to be mit- tout all this somewhat crazy anti-woke stuff in Florida, but maybe that's his constituency. Is he he's considered maybe to be a little stiff? What's your thinking of whether the DeSantis stock has risen or ebbed in the last couple weeks? Yeah, it's been very interesting. Obviously, we've been watching this closely because since 2021, really, Lincoln Project has been engaged in this dynamic between Trump and DeSantis in the back and forth because it's not a secret that the Republican establishment had been looking for other candidates besides Trump. Who can we go to? And DeSantis was always at the top of the list because, A, he's governor of a very important electoral state. The Republican Party infrastructure in Florida is incredibly strong. They've been building that up for decades now, and Democrats have fallen very short in trying to keep up with the Republican investment in Florida. You also have, uh, you know, a very ambitious wife and advisor in Casey DeSantis, who is part of his very close-knit inner circle. Ron DeSantis is not known for having many kitchen cabinet, close-knit political advisors who've been with him for a long time. He actually has a reputation of being a jerk, frankly, Mm -hmm. and a lot of his staffers aren't very loyal. I mean, you don't want to work for him, right? Right. People don't want to work for him. They don't stay a long time with him. And if you look at other more successful national candidates, they've had people with them for years and years and years because they actually like them. And I'd mentioned prior that there are some disgruntled DeSantis advisors and former staffers who are now over with the Trump campaign, in particular Susie Wiles. And so they know the pain points and pressure points and vulnerabilities of DeSantis and you're starting to see a more strategic attack against DeSantis coming from Trump world. Now, the debut in Iowa was fascinating because DeSantis is not warm and fuzzy. Frankly, he has the personality of a Jersey Turnpike toll taker. And you see that on display. I'm from Jersey, so I can say that. (laughs) Growing up with them, not friendly. Those aren't people you want to have a beer with. And when you have the early primary states like New Hampshire, like Iowa, which are retail politics states, people are starting to see that DeSantis is aloof. He can't be arrogant and awkward. He made some strategic mistakes, you know, being behind bike rack barriers and the campaign being very controlling about who he interacts with. People in Iowa don't like that. They want to touch you, talk to you. They want to feel you. Ron DeSantis, is, he doesn't look you in the eyes. He's always uh, you know, looking around, and he doesn't have a very personal approach to things, and he's a policy wonk. And frankly, the desanctimonious nickname that Trump has given him did not come out of whole cloth. Again, that came from DeSantis world people who know that he is he's condescending as hell when he talks to people. And that doesn't necessarily go over well in the primary states that he needs early on. So I think it was a mixed bag. People are being introduced to him on a national level outside of Florida where you don't have to have that retail politic, glad handing type of personality to win in Florida. You just need lots of money, a good infrastructure to advertise on major media markets throughout the state because it's a huge state. This is going to be a real test for him. And so far, I think that it's been a mixed bag. The way you're putting it, which all, all seems very trenchant to me, the mixed bag is charitable to him. Well, some people said, oh, we like him because they, you know, they think that he's a woke culture warrior, whatever the hell that means. Yeah. Can he scale that up from Florida? It's crazy. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. 
And the topic today is the constitutional standard that the Supreme Court specified in New York Times versus Sullivan must be met in order to hold a media defendant liable for defamation. It's known as actual malice or constitutional malice. And it's an issue that, of course, is playing out right now in the billion-dollar-plus lawsuit that Dominion has brought against Fox News Corporation. And to explain the concept, I'm particularly thrilled to introduce Rachel Bloom. Rachel Bloom is an actress and stand-up comedian, best known as the co-creator and star of the CW musical dramedy series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, for which she won a Golden Globe, Emmy, Critics' Choice Award, and TCA Award. In 2019, Rachel also took the show on the road with a series of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend Live episodes. Rachel has acted in numerous films, including Bar Fight and Most Likely to Murder, and voice acted in many animated films and TV shows. She's now co-starring in the Hulu comedy series Reboot. And to add a quick personal note, I just want to say that it is not easy for my wife and me to find TV series that both of us really like, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is surely one. We loved it, in fact, and totally on the strength of Rachel's performance, which is by turns moving, wacky, and hilarious. So I'm happy to give you Rachel Bloom to explain constitutional malice. Fox News was recently sued by Dominion Corp., which makes and sells vote-counting software, over the network's publication of then-President Trump's big lie that the election had been stolen from him, which Fox reporters, producers, and executives apparently knew was, in fact, a lie. In its public defense, Fox has cited freedom of the press principles, in particular the landmark 1964 Supreme Court case, New York Times v. Sullivan. What did the Sullivan case hold, and what is its place in First Amendment jurisprudence? L.B. Sullivan was a public affairs commissioner in Montgomery, Alabama, who oversaw the police department. He took issue with a full-page New York Times ad that criticized police actions during civil rights demonstrations. Sullivan brought a libel action under state law alleging, correctly, that trivial parts of the ad were inaccurate. Alabama libel law at the time provided liability where published falsities injured a person's reputation. A defendant could escape liability only by showing the reported facts were true. Under this standard, the jury awarded Sullivan $500,000. Justice Brennan's unanimous landmark opinion for the Supreme Court reversed the verdict. It held that the First Amendment requires a public figure to establish that the press had not only published false material, but had also done so with either actual knowledge or reckless disregard of its falsity. This is known as the actual malice or constitutional malice standard. The Supreme Court was clear that its Sullivan holding wasn't driven by a First Amendment value of good-faith factual errors. On the contrary, false reports are not a social good. However, First Amendment values required a prophylactic actual malice rule to prevent the press self-censoring or avoiding publication of truthful material by the prospect of a lawsuit for inadvertent false reporting. Not all modern democracies impose the same standard. Most notably, England permits a libel plaintiff to recover merely if material was false and harmed her reputation. As a result, England has far more libel cases than we do. Since Sullivan was decided, it is very rare for a public figure to successfully sue a media company for libel, for written falsehoods, or slander, for spoken falsehoods. 
The Fox Dominion case is the very rare dispute in which the plaintiff has come forward with strong evidence of knowing falsehood. The case is set for an April 2023 trial. The Sullivan case, until recently, had been considered part of the firmament of constitutional law, one of perhaps a few dozen cases whose solidarity was beyond question. But Justice Clarence Thomas has recently called for the Supreme Court to reconsider the case. Whether he can muster a majority of the court to revisit and potentially overrule Sullivan remains to be seen, but it would be a seismic event for the media and American constitutional law. For Talking Feds, I'm Rachel Bloom. Thank you very much, Rachel Bloom, for explaining actual malice. Rachel's newest stand-up tour starts tonight, March 20th. And you can find the tickets and future tour dates on her website, racheldoesstuff.com. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we uncork the notion of drinking bottled wine versus canned wine. Yeah, wine in a can. Wine connoisseurs may stay true to the bottle, but wine canisseurs have adopted the untraditional packaging for its added convenience, ideal for picnics, concerts, and outdoor events, really anywhere corkscrews are scarce. And since aluminum cools faster than glass, it reduces the time it takes to chill your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. But swirling your wine in a glass does help it open up, which gives it a lot more flavor. Of course, you can always transfer your canned wine to a glass, but if you're looking to experience the subtleties of a nice bottle, drinking from a glass adds a lot. There are wines more suited to the bottle, and there are those well suited for the canned life. Crisp and sparkling whites and rosés in particular tend to fare best in cans, but bigger, bolder wines will usually benefit from a nice glass. It would seem both have their place. Still on the fence between bottles or cans? There's always wine in a box. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. I want to move to something that really did seem crazy to me, but, you know, it was a busy news week and it didn't feel, I wasn't sure it registered. He announced a position that I found breathtaking on the Tucker Carlson show, no less. Not a shocker. Read it. Protecting the European nation's borders and the Ukraine war is not a vital interest and refer to the war in Ukraine as a territorial dispute. Why has he taken this position? What's the audience he's playing to? This seems extremely consequential to me. I think it is very consequential, and it's very consequential in real time for our allies in Europe and their confidence in our staying the course and for the people of Ukraine, obviously, and the government of Ukraine. So it's a, in my view, I mean, I'm appalled by it. And I think it's really irresponsible and terrible. But I think people being a little, assuming that it's necessarily politically a mistake, I don't necessarily assume that. I hope it turns out to be. But A, clearly it was well thought, or they thought it through. This was not him being cavalier. Right. He filled out a form. He didn't have to answer it and so forth. They must have either sensed or I suspect have actual polling that shows Trump was being helped by being anti-Ukraine, that the Republican primary electorate is moving increasingly anti, I'm using anti-Ukraine as a shorthand, but you know what I mean, anti-Ukraine, and that they couldn't let Trump 
have that lane to himself. And they must think, and I don't think it's crazy, that Trump will have other things dragging him down or he'll be too pro-Putin, but I can be sort of anti-Putin and, you know, skeptical about Ukraine and find a, a middle ground that people can live with. And the donors won't abandon me because Tarso suggested this. They so desperately do want someone other than Trump. And they don't have the nerve to go to someone who actually stood up to Trump, like Governor Camp of Georgia, or someone who actually is standing up to Putin like Pence or Pompeo or Christie, for that matter, or Nikki Haley. And so he can sort of straddle this effectively. It's tough, I don't, but I don't think it's a crazy political calculation if you're just thinking purely about the Republican nomination yeah. and thinking opportunistically. The real damage it's doing, though, is awful. One big test for me is I think he will pay more of a price for this if he's attacked for it. And of course, the commentary, a lot of it has been well, notice that Nikki Haley, she says, you have to stand with Ukraine. Pence has said that very strongly, Pompeo, actually. But none of them says it and then criticizes Trump or DeSantis. They all just say it, you know, we need to support Ukraine. And they think Republican primary voters are magically going to remember this a year from now. And you don't carve out a lane by just being slightly different and muted in your distinction. And I think there's room for one of them to say, this is irresponsible. This is wrong. What's happening is horrible over there. Putin is a war criminal. And I'm going to speak in the American style of saying we cannot abandon our friends in Ukraine. Now, is that 25% of the Republican primary electorate, 40%? I think it's somewhere around there. I don't think it's 0%. And I think if you're Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo, who's sitting at 3%, why not take that lane? You're not going to be the nominee anyway, probably. But you become a player as the kind of in that lane person, as opposed to this timid response that so far has come. People like me have denounced this, and it's a few conservative editorial pages have denounced DeSantis. Those you got a lot of Republican, you know, Rubio, Graham. Yeah, but I'd say even those denunciations are pretty lame. It's sort of, well, I wish he hadn't done that. Doesn't mm -hmm. he realize that that's not really wise? Maybe he's not getting all the good advice. Maybe his advisors persuaded right. him badly. No one is I saying see. this is disqualifying yeah. to be president of the United States, which is what, of course, I would like to and say. It should they be. Won't. But anyway, all I'm saying is right. I think a lot does depend. I think Haley in particular, who I think is kind of underrated by Washington pundits, because we've seen her yeah. flip-flop and all this. If she just said what a version of what I said and said, incidentally, you all say you like Israel. What's the case for standing with Israel that's any stronger than standing with Ukraine? And do you believe, incidentally, that he's going to stand with Taiwan, a tiny island off the coast of a massive and much more powerful country when he's unwilling to stand with Ukraine, which doesn't even want U.S. troops? I mean, I think there's a sustained attack that's possible that would do some damage to DeSantis put him in a very awkward position between, let's say, Haley and Trump. But he may get away with this irresponsible and opportunistic straddle. That's wishful thinking, Bill, real quick about Nikki Haley. She doesn't take a position on anything. So she's not, she's not going to do that. Give me a break. She's so milk toast. It's stomach turning. And I'm struck, too, because the Republican argument could obviously be that Biden brought this on by being weak in Afghanistan. Right. If you're weak in Afghanistan, you encourage Putin to do what he does in Ukraine. If you're weak in Ukraine, then you encourage Iran, North Korea, China and Taiwan, all these different bad actors around the world, why would you care about one bad actor and not the other and think they're not connected? That would be the argument you would imagine you would hear from a traditional Republican or a gentry Republican to use Tara's great phrase. I love that. But even from Tom Cotton or a Trump-supporting Republican who wants to carve out, as you say, a Trumpily acceptable version of being still tough pro-Ukraine, right? Anti-Biden version right. of being pro-Ukraine. Exactly. Now, I would say Lindsey Graham gave the kind of denunciation you're talking about. He said it was Neville Chamberlain. But you're right. Many of the other ones aren't. And the reason I think it's interesting, I talked to Republicans about this. It's a lot of maybe wishful thinking, but they're all saying, well, I think he's left some room here. They don't actually presume he believes it. 
because he didn't say that in 2015, he said the opposite in 2015. So your assumption is that your chosen candidate is actually not telling the voters the full truth. On a pretty important topic. Right, right. And giving himself enough room that when the moment comes, he can still ship weapons to it saying, well, it may not be our most vital interest, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop the weapons or that I can be talked into this or that. But what's really striking to me is that if you take DeSantis as a word right now, which, you know, I always think is interesting to do with political candidates, you have basically the two potential nominees who command 75, 80 percent of the Republican Party electorate right now in effect, taking what Bill's calling the anti-Ukraine stance, however nuanced it might be. And, you know, if you assume that one of these two guys is likely to be the nominee, that sets a very, very interesting general election next year, where instead of having a relatively bipartisan consensus, which we've pretty much had for the last year, right? Some Republicans say we shouldn't be there. Some Republicans say Biden isn't being tough enough. But broadly speaking, there's been a bipartisan consensus that we should be helping Ukraine and that Biden is, could do it better, but he's, he's doing the right thing. That will fracture. And we will then make it, put it right into the maw of a partisan fight in an election year. And if that if that war is not over by then, you can easily see a lot of people saying, I'm tired of this. You know, what are we doing there? We are spending a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. And, and it really will have an impact, not just at home, but abroad. And it will send a signal to the allies, send a signal to NATO. And by the way, guess who's waiting for this to play out? Putin. The message he's going to get, and I spent four years in Moscow, the message he's going to get is, I can wait them out. I'm more patient than they are. These Americans are fickle. They don't do anything for a long time. And when they do do it for a long time, they get tired and walk away. Look what happened again in Afghanistan. So his message that he's going to get is, wait him out. That's the luxury of not having to uh, worry about elections when you're exactly. a dictator. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to answer to the people, so you can wait them out as long as you want. That's right. But again, so this isn't just political, right? I mean, this makes that election potentially one of the they're very rare, right? 1860 or 1916, maybe, or 1940, that really the geopolitical consequences could be, you know, pivotal and huge. Although it is interesting, both of you have made the point that maybe it's just you say one thing and then you govern another. Well, I think really quick on that, I think this is an opportunity also for the Biden administration to clearly define to the American people why this is bigger, like why calling what's happening in Ukraine simply a territorial dispute is so egregious. I don't know that the average American frames it that way because they don't pay attention to foreign policy and the geopolitical landscape the way that we all do. They may think it is. It's not coming over here. What do we care what's going on over there? No, why we care is because this is a fundamental fight between democracy and autocracy and dictatorship, authoritarianism, which we are seeing hints of around the world as a growing movement, including here in the United States. So the United States for the last post-World War II decades has been the leader of protecting democracy around the world. And we were the beacon of freedom and democracy. And are we losing that footing if we do not support our friends in Ukraine and what's happening in Europe with a, a Putin-style authoritarian who is now partnering with China and other enemies of, of freedom in the, in the world? This is a much bigger struggle than just whether we're sending weapons to Ukraine or not. You know, the NATO alliance is at stake. Our geostrategic alliances in the world and in Western Europe, that is at stake. And the president of the United States actually has more direct influence on what happens in this space than they do in domestic policy, frankly, because of the role of the president of the United States being able to impact those types of international relations. So 
this is something that I think, I hope that Democrats and the president are able to communicate as we go along and do not let Republicans continue to define this issue as something that is either or as far as interventionist or the money or it's bigger than that. And frankly, an Axios poll just came out that showed only 42 percent of Republicans support us supporting Ukraine with sending money and weapons. And I think 60 percent of independents and 79 percent of Democrats do support us supporting Ukraine. So the Republican position is out of step with the mainstream in this country. And I hope that the Democrats continue to um, capitalize on that and explain why it matters. But he's thinking, isn't he, that it's coming that way? I mean, there's a fatigue factor. There is. If they're not reminded why they should care, they will get fatigue. Yes. What I've been surprised, I think, to Tara's point about Biden not making the case very often is correct. And it's a choice, obviously, they've made. They've decided that they don't want his message to be about foreign affairs. They want it to be about pocketbook issues here at home, right? Look at the State of the Union. He basically mentions Ukraine in passing. He has the ambassador up there and introduces her, but he doesn't explain. He's the biggest audience he's going to get of the year. He doesn't really take the time to explain what the consequences are for Americans and why he thinks it's important for them to be involved in the way that we are, to Tara's point. He did go there, obviously, and that was a big moment. And he uses that, obviously, to speak to an American audience as well as a foreign audience. So it's not like he hasn't done it at all. But I've been surprised, and I know Bill, if you have a thought on this, I've been surprised that he hasn't taken advantage of the fact that there is Republican support for this and done something bipartisan, brought Mitch McConnell and other hawkish Republicans to the White House and had a bipartisan thing saying, we're in this together. We don't agree on everything. They would like me to send more of this. And I'm reluctant on the planes or whatever. We stand behind Ukraine, blah, 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 together. George W. Bush did that with Iraq before, obviously, it went badly for him and Democrats fled the, the scene. He did it with Afghanistan. George H.W. Bush, I think, did that. That's the traditional American way. And I think even Bill Clinton did that with some Republicans during some of the Balkan stuff because it was meant to say this is about America, not about party. Republicans aren't going to listen to Biden's explanations, right? They're just not. They're not open to, to, to listening to him any more than Democrats are open to listening to Trump. So I'm surprised they haven't tried to do something that would emphasize the bipartisan nature of it before they lose it. I mean, it's so polarized. They probably figure, you know, it's difficult, but I agree. I mean, I, in fact, the first time I was in the White House, having left in January 20th, 1983, the next time I was in was in December 95 for a meeting. I don't know if it was Clinton himself. Maybe it was the National Security Advisor or something. So I was a Republican editing, newly editing the Weekly Standard, a conservative who supported the intervention in Bosnia. And it was sort of to show that this isn't just to, to take the edge off what was pretty substantial. People forget Republican criticism at the time for Phil Graham and, and others. Now, I, I sort of agree that the administration could do more. They will say off the record, I'm sure they tell this to you, Peter, that in a way we want to it's easier for those Republican supporters for us not to make it too much Joe Biden's war. So we don't want to be giving right. huge speeches about it. Maybe that's a little bit of a dodge. Right. And I think the trip to Kiev, I was disappointed by the State of the Union, but I think the trip to Kiev was a big moment. And he staked his presidency at that point, I think, on a decent outcome in Ukraine to some degree, as much as one, one can, as it were. There is one argument that particularly would appeal to Republicans. Or they still won't like it, but I think some of the base might hear it, or some of the, at least parts of the, above the base, you know, but not unimportant. 42% incidentally being on the side of Ukraine among the Republican primaries sort of makes my point. There is a lane there. It's not, again, 70%, but it's not nothing. Anyway, China. I mean, they all want to be so hawkish on China. I think some of them really do. Some of them say they want to. Some of them are just, it's a good domestic issue. Some of them, it's a way of saying, I'm not really just an isolationist, but I really want to be tough in some vague, abstract way and, you know, over the next 20 years on China. But I had a conversation with Aaron Freeberg, a China expert and foreign policy expert. 
And I asked him, I honestly, I wasn't even thinking about it that much in this context. I said, what's the single one thing you could do to really show China that we're serious and that might deter adventurism in Taiwan or elsewhere? And he said, without missing a beat, he said, win the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. If we stick to it and if we defeat Putin, that's more important than any particular reallocation of some resources to defend our aircraft carriers over there or helping improve the Taiwanese military and so forth. And so I think making the point that simply, if you're serious about China, we cannot let Putin win in Ukraine. That would also speak to some Republican voters. Again, not a huge number are going to suddenly pivot, but at least make it easier for, let's say, the Tom Cottons of the world to take someone. A lot of stupid, in my opinion, and some cheap attacks on Biden in the midst of all of his talk. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, he says we've got to stick with Ukraine, you know, and that's kind of where Pence and Pompeo have been. And making it a little easier for those people by giving them more of the China argument to make would be, I think, a shrewd thing for the administration to do. Senate Republicans get it. House Republicans don't. I mean, Kevin McCarthy turned down an invite by Zelensky to come to Ukraine, which I think was just, it shows you where the uh, Republican base stands on that. But Mike McCall, the chairman of the House you know, Foreign Affairs Committee, has been very good. Foreign Relations Committee has been very good. So I was in Europe the last couple of times, the last six weeks, and trying to work on informally on some Ukraine stuff, trying to see what arguments might work better over there, so what we could bring back here that would it might influence some people, including some Republicans. They have a wonderful new president of Czech Republic who... He's a former NATO general, looks Republican-ish, you know what I mean? Well, bring him over, you know, let's get him over here and let him meet with Republicans. It's not like having some Biden person, and also incidentally, the recently re-elected prime minister of Estonia, who's wonderful and terrifically eloquent about this, and from a sort of centrist, center-right party. Th that the administration is not doing a good job of, in my opinion. They could use some of these other Europeans. It's all about, we have a problem with Schultz, Macron, we have to have them over here. They don't take advantage of the smaller states, the Balts, the Central and East European states. Anyway, that's something we're working on. But in the course of this, it just was brought home to me how they are following American politics very closely. And at the time, I was sort of in the semi-reassuring mode of, look, McConnell's good, McCall is good, McCarthy is just wants to avoid it, but he's not ultimately dedicated to being irresponsible. And we can navigate this, for, we who want to help Ukraine can navigate this for the next year. But the counter-argument is Trump's out there beating the drum. What if that becomes the dynamic in the country and among Republicans out there? That starts to erode these current 60% House Republicans are okay to 40 to 30, and maybe the Senate goes from 80% okay to 60, and then suddenly other presidential candidates jump on this bandwagon, and or, or if they matter. But DeSantis was the one who was up in the air at the time. And I remember saying to people in Europe, watch DeSantis, that'll be a, a signal. I'm sort of heartened by the fact that he hasn't jumped on that bandwagon. Two weeks later, he <laughs> so did. Much and, that. And I, but I mean, I say this only <laughs> to bring home, this is serious. I mean, I, this is having a real effect on these were senior people in European governments and European you know, think tank types. And this is having a real time effect right now. It's not like they wait yeah. to see what happens on November, whatever date it is, 2024. It's in real time. They're not idiots. They, a, what's the chances of the Republican winning the presidency? 40%, 50% next time? Now the two by far most likely candidates to be the nomination are one totally committed and the other three quarters committed to an anti-Ukraine policy. It's harder for them internally. They've got their own internal people who are hesitant, who are saying, well, wait a second, let's not go too far down this road. It's very irresponsible. You know, you mentioned 1940. I mean, it would be as if Republicans had nominated in America first year in 1940, but they nominated Wendell Wilkie, which actually was not unimportant to the Roosevelt's ability to do what he had to do over the next year to prepare for World War II. So anyway. Yeah, I really wanted to shine a spotlight on it. It's got a lot to do with the continuing 
existential troubles that strikes me the Republican Party, but it's much bigger than that yeah. now. And I, uh, I'm really glad we were able to talk about it. It's the Tucker Carlson doctrine. Very possibly, right? I mean, right? no coincidence that he announces it on that show, right? That's right. And he is driving the agenda here. He's a pro-Putin propagandist and Fox News has allowed it. Donald Trump is in that wing as well. And so DeSantis made a calculated decision that that's the constituency that he needs. But it's also impacting foreign policy on the Republican side yeah. because some of the more responsible Republican senators, at least, that understand foreign policy and understand the implications of making comments like that, you know, at least they came out and said something about it. But I think and I was in, in Germany at a conference in the fall where the Germans were paying very close attention to all of this as well, given their precarious situation with Ukraine, Russia and supporting the war over there. So it does have huge implications. And this is the, like I said, the Tucker Carlson foreign policy doctrine that Republicans are now falling victim to. And look, all the Tucker Carlson stuff, it's often like kind of a circus and silly, but it's a dangerous world. And this Correct. is very far from it. And that is a transition, as are Bill's comments on China, to the other point. And, you know, I'm not a foreign policy expert, far from it, but just blew my mind this week, which was the article by Peter earlier in the week about China's brokering some kind of new warmed relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Maybe, you know, not a terrible thing. I wanted to talk about that, but it seems to me a extremely consequential sequential one. Well, let me just put it that way. How significant is this deal for the region? And what are the interests of all the parties involved, I guess, to include the United States? Could I start with you, the author here, Peter? Yeah, I mean, I, we should be careful not to overread anything into it, but it is important yeah. because, of course, the central fissure in the Middle East these days has not been Arab-Israeli, but been Saudi-Iranian. Right. Sunni, Shia, the two pillars of Islam are, have been at war with each other through proxies in Yemen now for years. They have been defining the relations in the region now for a while. And for them to restore, you know, at least embassies in each other's states suggests something of a cooling of that hot war. There's some talk about what commitments have been made and so forth. And then secondly, of course, it's the idea that the Chinese are the brokers, right? That the idea that the Chinese are the ones making this deal is a radically interesting change in the dynamic of the Middle East. Now, the Biden administration would say, look, we couldn't have made that deal. We don't talk with Iran. We don't have relations that wouldn't have worked. That's fine. The issue is not should the United States have brokered it, but the issue is that China now wants to be a player in that region. And they have made themselves into one in a very, very showy way. They've been trying to look for economic inroads into the region. They've been looking to build a military base in the region. And now they're defining themselves as a peacemaker. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge for the United States. It's been growing for a while, and it's sort of demonstrated through this one moment. And I say something about this, too. This is not new. You know, China has been working on their global influence for decades. We already know they're a hegemonic country. And we've been watching the Belt and Road Initiative with the global infrastructure investments around the world. We've seen even back during the early 2000s, after the permanent normal trade relations agreement went through, and that dynamic economic shift in the econ world economy and how the global markets worked with the United States and China, that China started seeing opportunities to ingratiate themselves in different parts of the world, even the Caribbean. 
where there were devastating hurricanes and they went in and they rebuilt soccer stadiums and schools and hospitals and beginning to curry favor in parts of the world where the United States would take it for granted that they were the main power broker there. The Middle East now with China, you know, a lot of us were looking at this and saying, well, they have an economic interest, right? There is an energy need that China is looking at and they can see a strategic alliance with Saudi Arabia and Iran for energy needs, but it's bigger than that. I mean, the military side of this is very concerning for me. As we speak, by the time this airs, China will have engaged in naval exercises with Saudi Arabia and Russia in the Gulf of Oman. Like this, they've done this before. It's not the first time. They did it in 2019. They did it last year. They built a base in Djibouti in 2017. They are creeping in with a military influence in the Middle East and North Africa and currying favor there where the United States has had a, a bit of a power vacuum. And China sees an opportunity there. Now, some China analysts have said, well, it's just all about economics and they don't really care about being power brokers in the region for other reasons. But I think that that has shifted since the war in Ukraine, since they see they're paying attention to how the United States reacts. Perhaps they're looking at this going, you know what, we do need to continue to make an investment, a security investment in this region and enter into where this power vacuum where the United States is and see where we can be a player. So this is something that I think we need to keep paying attention to and the Biden administration needs to have a much, much tougher response at some point and shoring up our alliances in the region where we have them still to beat back China's influence. Peter mentioned the State of the Union not saying much about Ukraine. Almost all the sentences were in the past tense of sort of we've worked with them. We've shown that we we're supporting them. I mean, not a word about Iran, literally not mentioned. So these demonstrations there are pretty amazing and very admirable and I think deserve a little more notice over here and by the administration. And Iran's not even a, the usual complexity of, well, it's kind of a friendly regime, even if it's authoritarian, so we have to be careful. I mean, with Iran, what are we even being careful for? But I think it's a big deal. If you had asked foreign policy experts six months ago, not will China have some influence, but will literally China will broker a deal, the three of them, the photo, I mean, that's aggressive by China. Maybe it shows they're a little bit worried about Biden being stronger over the last year because of Ukraine. So in a way, it's good. It's not necessarily entirely a sign of Chinese strength. It's also a sign of their concern. But no, it, it reminds us that it's a dangerous world. And you know what? The authoritarian regimes, they tend to find each other. Isn't that interesting? You know? And so for all the talk, well, Saudis and Iran, they'll never get together ever. China, what do they have to do with it? They don't do the Middle East. Russia, China, very different. You know what? What is the actual alliance now? Russia, China, Iran, literally. And now the Saudis kind of playing footsie with the three of them. A new axis of evil. Mm. And what about the Ronald Reagan worldview, both domestically and internationally, and the ripple effects, starting, say, with Israel? I, th this is tectonic to my, you know, not fully informed lights. I wish we could go on for another two hours on just this topic. We can't. We're out of time, except for our five words or fewer. Today's question is March Madness or baseball opening day. Discuss. I'll go first. March Madness, let's go UVA basketball. <laughs> let's go Cavaliers. Baseball better than basketball. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, how about go Nationals, remember 2019. <laughs> nice, nice. New rules, but play ball. Sad to say we are out of time. Thank you very much to Bill, Peter, and Tara. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, 
please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting daily video content, breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on our Patreon site, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with law professor Ali Larson about the evolution of doctrines, and in particular, the major questions doctrine in the Supreme Court. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to the great Rachel Bloom for explaining the actual malice standard for defamation. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. This episode of Talking Feds is dedicated to the memory of my dear friend Dana Hyde and to her family, John, Elijah, and Judah. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.